We find ourselves in John 13, 1 through 20 this morning, which is a passage that is certainly one of my favorites, but also I think one of the most important to come to regularly to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means to, uh, to, to reflect him to others, to be faithful to him. We'll be reading verses 1 through 20. I'll ask you to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Haja Umujalo is a 17-year-old girl who lives in Sierra Leone in a small village. And as part of her village, she watched with horror and fear as Ebola entered the, vi- the village to ravage it. In the course of Ebola hitting her village, uh, Haja would lose her parents, her aunt and uncle, and her one-year-old child. She would also become infected with the disease, but... As days went by, she was one of the minority who recovered, making her immune, at least for the foreseeable future, against Ebola. So she was approached. You see, the local orphanage, a Christian entity that cares for children who have been left parentless because they've either been lost to Ebola or some other tragedy, care for children, but a new problem is presented with Ebola because the children coming in may be infected themselves. And so every child you receive, you you run this risk, or you might run the risk of infecting all of the children who are gathered there and wiping out the whole orphanage. And so they approached Taja, saying, would you be a caretaker 
for 21 days for the children coming in to see whether or not they're infected. If they are, they'll be moved on, and if they're not, they'll be moved into the orphanage. And Haja agreed, and she said the most remarkable thing in the midst of, remember, she's lost her parents, her aunt and uncle, her son, her entire family. And she said, I'm happy because I'm protecting others. I thought, my goodness, in the West, we perhaps grossly underestimate and maybe do not even understand the happiness, the joy, the satisfaction that, that may come with serving others. Our Lord is one who exemplifies service to those who follow Him in the act of washing their feet. And He tells us that it's a pattern for us to follow. So what do we learn from this passage about real and true service? And what does it mean to actually follow it? Let's consider the story itself. John tells us at the the beginning that it's Passover, and John's mentioned Passover a number of times throughout the writing of his gospel in each year. And each time he mentions really a Jewish holiday, John's making the not-so-subtle point that Jesus fulfills this holiday. And for John, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's come to lay down his life in humility that those who are atoned for by that blood will be saved. But, you know, John sets, John, uh, John sets up chapter 13 pretty interestingly. You notice that he, he, he tells you, he reminds you that Jesus is aware that his hour had come. Jesus knows that, that he's nigh unto death, and not only death, but separation from the Father and horror. And John's already told us that, that Jesus is struggling with this. Right? He's, he said, can I pray? Father, take this from me. May this hour pass. He doesn't, but he, he's in the middle of this angst. And John says, in the middle of this angst, he goes out of his way to say he's loved those who are his, and he loved them to the end. What a remarkable statement. Imagine that you know that you face death at the end of this week. How do you use your time? What do you do? Do you knock out a couple bucket list items? Do you spend time with those that you love the most? Whatever we were prone to do, I'm sure that question would be driven by the notion of, what do I want to do? And here's Jesus in the moment of his death. John says he loved them well to the very end. What does that mean? What does that look like? How, How do we understand it? It looks like Jesus disrobing down to a towel and washing his disciples' feet. This act of love that he communicates in, in his last days. And the act itself is astonishing. I mean, it's really, we get a little bit of a feel for it, like, well, that would be awkward for Jesus to kneel down and to wash my feet. But your feet are pretty clean, at least by ancient standards, in which you're not only walking around in the dust all the time, but remember in the ancient world, you're dumping everything in the street. So you have trod through everything and your feet are filthy. But it's not only astonishing for that reason, it's astonishing because they have certain expectations of who Jesus is supposed to be. He's the Messiah who's coming. He's the king. He's, he's going to set everything right in Israel. And here he is then kneeling to wash the feet of the disciples. It's a very odd picture. It's, you know, it's hard to draw a direct analogy, but imagine just for a moment that you're on the smoldering ruins of the World Trade Center. It's just after 9-11 and and George W. Bush arrives to give one of the more notable speeches of his presidency and says, you know, we will not bow to terror. We will be unified in strength. We will go after all of these people who did this. 
And, you know, there might be something in you, the American spirit, and you're like, yes. And then, uh, and as my first act in this new endeavor, I'm going to kneel and wash the feet of the press corps. And you'd be like, what? No, we're, no. This is when you get, you put the CIA in motion, special teams, special forces. Let's get that going. You don't kneel and wash. It's inappropriate to your office. It's inappropriate to the agenda at hand. It doesn't really fit. It's very puzzling. That's kind of the notion of what's confronting Peter. It's like, this doesn't fit. This isn't what you're supposed to be doing. Yes, it's making me uncomfortable, but it's also an agenda that we we really can't understand. And Jesus is quite frank. He says, you're not going to understand what I'm doing for you. In fact, you won't understand it until after my death and resurrection. Because in this very act, I mean, Jesus inverts everything. Everything that we think about success and power and authority. Those things that we look at and we envy and we, we desire. Jesus has it all and lays it aside and says, no, this is what love is. And this is what it means to live as my followers. It turns everything upside down, which is another reason why Peter will have a terrible time understanding what is going on. Consider his misunderstanding. In verse 6, Peter, uh, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Right? Peter is not one to, um, to, take, to be uh, ambiguous or hard to interpret. He doesn't like this idea at all, and it echoes the time in which Jesus began to, uh, to divulge to the, the disciples, listen, this road that we're on is going to end in my death. And Peter rebukes him. He says, no, you can't talk like that. And, and Peter says, get behind me, Satan. Or Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The kind of notion that Peter is struggling with, no, this isn't the way the story is supposed to go. I won't let you wash my feet. But Jesus says in response in verse 7, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Why is Peter so resistant to let Jesus wash his feet? What's the big deal? Sure, we can say it's a bit awkward and it, it seems improper. Jesus, after all, is Jesus. Why would I let him wash my feet? I'd be happy to wash your feet, Lord. That would, I would feel a lot better about that. There's that aspect. But there's also perhaps the aspect that uh, Peter doesn't want to be necessarily clean on, on Jesus' terms. You see, if, if you acknowledge that you really have to be cleaned by Jesus and that only Jesus can, can clean you, both in this, there's this act that is very uh, symbolic that represents, of course, the cleansing that Jesus offers ultimately. If you say, well, I don't really need to be cleaned in depth in every part of me by Jesus, then you're really not as sinful as you might perceive. And that's a much, it feels a little bit better than actually acknowledging that, oh, I am hopeless unless you wash me, Jesus. It's also vulnerable to be loved to that extent. You know, think just for a moment right now. What if, what if Jesus showed up and said, hey, you, I would like to wash your feet. What's your reaction? I think almost everyone would have some degree of recoil, maybe not after this passage, but some sense of, oh, that seems inappropriate. But why? Is it, I don't really want, I don't need that level of cleaning. Jesus, that's a lot. Or it may be, um, similarly, that just that it's terribly vulnerable, that, um, 
You know, some of you, for whatever reason growing up, you may have decided, you know, I'm going to engage life with this serious degree of control, and I'm going to plan things out, and I'm going to oversee what happens, and I'm going to protect myself that way, because life at large will be manageable and predictable. I will be ahead of everything that might confront me. And so to to be loved to this extent is to make oneself really out of control, to be very vulnerable, to say, oh, there's some things that I can't possibly handle, and I am totally at the mercy of the, of the grace that's extended from Jesus in this act. That's a hard place to be. It, it eats away at the pride and the glory that we would seek for ourselves. It makes us profoundly humble. It makes us profoundly reliant upon Jesus. When I was, uh, I did some youth work when I was in seminary and pastored a youth group that was actually shared between two churches. And I thought, you know, I am going to do the most brilliant thing ever. We are going to read John 13 and I am going to wash everyone's feet. And so we did this. The, youth, the leaders and I, we, we, we read the passage and we went around and washed everyone's feet and the youth were pretty impressed. And then one of the youth got up at the end and, and said, okay, well, now I'm going to wash your feet. And I thought, well, no, that wasn't part of my plan. This, we're not washing my feet. This was just for me to serve you, to show you how much like Jesus I am. I don't really want you to, we're not going to do this. And so whether or not the youth got the teaching moment in relation to Jesus, I don't know, but I certainly missed it. Because what I was engaging in was simply that it didn't have anything really to do with Jesus. It had everything to do with me receiving more glory and me acting in a certain way. And that's, that's actually what Peter does in, in after working through his first misunderstanding, he moves on into his second understand, misunderstanding. He still doesn't get it because Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And, uh, Peter says, oh, okay, well, if the washing is the key and that's part of following you in faithfulness, then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If if cleanliness in this regard is what it means to follow you, then let's get the super soaker out. Well, you can scrub me down. You know, Peter, you, you have to sympathize with his enthusiasm, but he just says, oh, this is the key, the washing. Then by all means, let's do it, let's do it to a great extent. And how often does discipleship take this manifestation? I'm impressed by Jesus. I want to grow near to him. And someone, someone realizes, oh, well, to grow near to Jesus, I have to read my Bible. And I read it all in a week. Right? In zeal and exuberance. But I think, what I think is that by doing this act, Simply, I achieve something. It, the act itself now grants me access to something. It's an exercise of power, which the story isn't meant to be about at all. It's not about going through a trick or having this particular washing so that suddenly you reach a new level of holiness. The whole thing is about coming humbly to Jesus and actually being willing to be served by him. To recognize that he is Lord and Messiah. And if he says, you need your feet washed, the proper answer is, okay, Lord. Then wash my feet. It's interesting that um, Jesus actually acknowledges that everyone's clean that's gathered there. 
of course not Judas, but right by virtue of being with him, they are already clean. And he says, yeah, only your feet are really getting dirty. That is what needs to be clean. And he gives us this picture. And he writes, says that there are always parts of us that need a constant and regular cleaning that must be brought regularly. Of course, we're clean in the atonement of Christ. But there are always parts of us that continue to get dirty and often get dirty in the same ways and which must be brought back to Jesus to continue to be clean. And that is our, our humility and our complete reliance upon his salvation. We need Jesus not only to wash that dirt of sin from us, but even more so that we would, we would humble ourselves to be loved to that extent because it's out of that love that we then actually become equipped to carry out this pattern. Jesus is not messing around. In verse 15, this is, this is an example for you. Now, word example carries the idea of pattern. In other words, it's a blueprint. This is a blueprint for you to follow. And it's not so much, although many Christian traditions have engaged very readily the act of foot washing. It's not so much meant to be that, but that you would take the posture of a servant, that you would lay aside your perceived rights and strengths and abilities and what you think you are entitled to for the opportunity to actually be mercy and grace to someone else in service to them and acting like a servant on their behalf. And to be equipped for that, you see, you have to be washed by Jesus in order to do that. If you haven't really been washed by Jesus, if you only pretend, if you're like Peter, it's like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Or maybe you're like, yeah, well, let's do my head and my hands. Your feet are filthy, but I just need a mani, and we can move on, right? And so, and that's the attitude you take. And then you go and say, I'm going to be a faithful disciple. I'm going to serve someone else. You can't serve somebody else because you haven't been served by Jesus. You don't have the love that is necessary coursing through you to then wash someone else's feet. And so that very act of washing someone else's feet becomes just like my act in that high school youth group. It becomes an act of self-righteousness and power and has nothing to do with the gospel. And how sad when we pervert the gospel in that way. Make it something that is difficult to understand and something that is inaccessible. We must be washed first in order to wash and engage this example that Jesus has left to us. Now, the trick is that... It, the passage doesn't say this explicitly, but in my experience, you know, notice in verse 17, it says, you know, you can know this, but blessed are you if you actually do it. If you know these things, the blessing comes if you actually do them. And knowing these things, in my experience, actually comes through doing them. And so I would hate for you to walk away this morning and think, well, given what Ryan said, I need to figure out first how really to be washed by Jesus really to be humble, and then I can go and wash someone else's feet. Then I can go and serve in a real way. And it's really actually more the case that often by simply going and serving and realizing that our motives are always mixed, that we then have to come back to Jesus and say, yeah, I didn't really get it. You see, if I didn't actually seek to wash the feet of the youth group, I never would have understood that I didn't understand what was going on. And so whether it's changing a light bulb here on a work day, whether it's going over to someone's house who's hurting, whether it's providing a meal, whether it's going to India, whatever you choose as this act of service, engage it, and then begin to reflect upon your heart. 
And where, where in this am I actually being washed by Jesus? And where have I been pretending? And let those scales come down. You know, we, we have developed Christianity into something that is radically antiseptic. It, we, you read the story of Jesus, and one of the reasons I love it is that when do you see this? You know, not someone just serving in a, you know, check the box, I serve, but someone ridiculously lowering themselves to actually minister to someone, to be grace and mercy to someone else. There was an article I was reading, and it was an analogy for me. This woman went to Japan. She was invited by a friend, and her friend was all excited and said, we're going to the playground. She said, okay, let's go to the playground. They both had kids, and they walked into the playground, and she was very nervous very quickly. The playground, or what was called this playground in Japan, was is known as something, I think they call them adventure playgrounds. But you walk in, and there are like seven open fires burning around the playground. And there's scrap metal and uh, debris, like a scrapyard, spread all around. And as you begin to look, you said there were kids in the trees, and they were really high in the trees, like 30, 40 feet up in the air. And their kids were hammering nails into wood and kids playing with sticks in the fire. And she, she recoiled. This is not a safe environment. Can't be here. But it caused her to begin to reflect and to realize that for a number of reasons that we don't have time to go into, uh, American playground code has created the most, the safest thing imaginable, right? You, you would have to actually work hard to hurt yourself on an American playground. And as I'm reading that, it goes on to say all the things that are lost by not allowing children to actually engage, things that are somewhat dangerous, and to learn from them. I said, my goodness, our, our Christianity is an American playground. It's something that's completely safe and has no danger and where we wouldn't risk anything. And when I read John 13, I think oh, our playground should look more like the adventure playground. It should be look like, look like things that make us a bit uncomfortable. It should look like things where your service, your act of humility there makes me very uncomfortable because, well, frankly, I'm too proud to actually think about being that humble or serving at that level. That's what it would look like to embody John chapter 13. But imagine if we did. Imagine if we became a people that didn't that didn't pretend about the gospel, just say, yeah, Jesus will save you and work really hard and get a good car and a good house and then we'll just go to heaven when we die. But what if we were people who said, yeah, now, the, Jesus comes and saves, but the abundant life is right now. And as we wash one another's feet, we reveal that he's Lord now, not just of some esoteric state in the future. What a, not only a beautiful image, but that is what will actually offer life to the world. That's what we aspire to together. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, take a moment to search your heart. Take a moment to think, what, have I really been let Jesus wash my feet? Or do I have more in common with Peter? And am resistant to that entire idea or pretend about it in a way that it doesn't actually cleanse me? And then you can ask, in what ways do I actually reflect that service to others? Is that service real, or is that service self-righteousness? And as you reflect on those things, rejoice. Because Jesus is not surprised by how far you may be away from Him this morning, and He's not surprised by how dirty your feet are. 
If you think you've kept that a secret, you're the only person that thinks that between you and Jesus. So come rejoicing. Because it's in this very act that we get a little taste of what it means for Jesus to wash our feet. Because here we enjoy and we are nourished by Him laying down His body and His blood for us.